This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. When the pandemic hit, there was a run on grocery stores, and uh, many of us experienced that. And if not, probably saw images of it as uh, there were shortages of meat and produce uh, all over the country. But the candy aisles were full. (laughs) Why is that? When a crisis hits, we go for things that sustain us most, not things we like the most. So this summer, we're in a sermon series entitled Theological Boot Camp. And uh, this really is intended to be every bit as challenging as it sounds. We're, we're not offering Kit Kats and M&Ms. We are offering meat and potatoes. Last week, we plumbed the depths of Psalm 19 to see what it tells us about the revelation of God, the God's self-disclosure of himself in nature, in scripture, and Jesus. Today's topic is the glory of God. We're going to look at two points uh, today regarding the glory of God. What is meant by the glory of God? And then three camera angles on the glory of God. What is meant by the glory of God and three camera angles on the glory of God. First, what is meant by the glory of God? Uh, In some ways, this concept is one of the most difficult theological ideas to grasp, along with the holiness of God, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, um, one of the most difficult theological topics to grasp, and yet it, it may very well be the richest theological concept. Um, doing it justice in one message is, is impossible, but perhaps the best thing that can come out of this today is by the end, we're on our knees in worship before the Lord, and uh, also maybe today is the start of uh, your own personal study of the glory of God, which will occupy you for the rest of your life. As I mentioned last week, uh, when we looked at Psalm 19, the word glory itself means to be weighty or heavy. Um, For example, when Eli the judge heard the news that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, he fell backwards off his chair, broke his neck, and died because he was old and full of glory, old and heavy. Uh, During the past three months, you may have found yourself becoming more glorious as you've found yourself at home more than you typically are. David's son Absalom was endowed with very long and luxurious hair. We're told that it weighed 200 shekels and it was full of glory. It was heavy. Now, when referring to God, glory... Um, is often defined by synonyms. And the most common synonyms associated with glory are beauty, splendor, majesty, excellent, and honor. So to be glorious is to be important, significant. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. So in creation, God went public with his glory. That is, glory was something that was already characteristic of God. God. God was already important and significant. He was and is ultimate reality. In creation, he went public with it. So 
the immeasurable enormity of our universe loudly proclaims the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, the importance of God, the significance of God. One author has, has put it this way. He said, the term, the glory of God in the Bible generally, generally refers to the visible splendor or moral beauty of God's manifold perfections. It is an attempt to put into words what cannot be contained in words, what God is like in his unveiled magnificence and excellence. So what the Bible most often does is not give us definitions of the glory of God, but it demonstrates time and again that all of life is about the glory of God. The universe, human life, your life is meant to serve the glory of God, the the billions of galaxies, the mountain ranges, the oceans, the flowers of the field, human life, your life is meant to testify to the perfections of God, the importance of God, the significance of God. Now in saying this, I I want to, to make it clear that we do not increase God's glory. We don't increase God's glory, but we were made to increase awareness of it and sensitivity to it. Now, today we're going to look at three camera angles that hopefully will provide us a a leering look into this idea that, that the glory of God is meant to take center stage in the unfolding story of the cosmos, um, in the unfolding story of nature and history, events, and yes, your life. We, we all, all of this was made to put God's importance and significance on display. So let's look at these camera angles. Three camera angles on the glory of God. The first one comes to us from Genesis 1, and then it's echoed in Isaiah 43. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, ordinarily, we we use this idea of the image of God to establish the unique value and dignity that human life possesses in comparison to other life forms. And that's certainly one implication of the text. But but often, we actually skip over the God-centeredness of the way in which human beings were created. And it's interesting because we can get at the God-centeredness of creation or the glory of God in God's creation of human beings by emphasizing the right word in this question. Whose image were you created in? God's image and no other. Out of all the images and likenesses God could have created us in on the sixth day, he created us in his image. So in that regard, there is a God-centeredness to human life that no other life form has. You are created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, you are meant to image him in your life. Your life is meant to be God-centered or God-glorifying. 
Your life is meant to showcase the significance and the importance of God. Outside Lambeau Field, there are statues of Packer greats. Uh, One such statue is Vince Lombardi. It's a tourist attraction. You could drive um, by the stadium and you'll see people constantly uh, stopping by, hopping out of their cars and getting pictures with themselves alongside the statue of Vince Lombardi. But it isn't actually Vince Lombardi. It's an image of him. So why does his image get so many pictures? Well, it gets so many pictures because it's a representation of the original. The statue points beyond itself to the original. The image possesses a Vince Lombardiness to it. But the image is all about the original. So as images of God were representations of the original, were meant to point beyond ourselves to the original. As, as images of God, it's still all about God. There is a God-centeredness to human existence. There's a God-gloriousness to human existence. Or think about it another way. Outside Lambeau Field, you have the statue of Vince Lombardi. But why isn't there a statue of Roger Hagberg? Well, there isn't a statue of Roger Hagberg because you don't make statues of football players who have no glory. Lombardi possesses a glory that almost necessitates an image of him. Let's come at it from a different but related angle. Imagine for a moment that you're a very talented sculptor. You, um, you're an artist. You sculpt with clay. And uh, you, you work with clay to fashion an image of yourself, your likeness. And not just one image, but seven billion sculptures of your image. Enough for each person on the planet to own for themselves an image of you. Now, upon receiving this likeness of you that you have created and sent to the four corners of the world, what is the average person thinking? Who is this? And are they full of themselves? Is there any doubt in your mind, you the artist, you the creator of this, Is there any doubt in your mind, the centerpiece of human existence, at least for you, is you, the sculptor. By creating 7 billion images of you, are you not making a statement about the you-centeredness of the universe? But this is precisely what God has done. Now, for us to do so would reek of vanity and insecurity. But God is God, not a human being. He is creator. We are creature. He has life in himself, but we are derivative. He has filled the earth with seven billion of his likenesses. And so I ask... What is life supposed to be about? I hope you're beginning to see the God-centeredness of life. That you, along with the universe, have been made for the glory of God. And I also hope you're beginning to see the God-centeredness of God. 
Human beings have been made in the image and likeness of God, not so that we would become arrogant and autonomous, but that we would, as likenesses of God, shine forth the glory of the original, God himself. The likeness is meant to point to the original. The likeness is meant to bring attention to the original, to reflect the original. And this is precisely what God has said in Isaiah chapter 43. He said this, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You are the image and likeness of God and you exist to point beyond yourself to the original. This is what it means to glorify God. There is a God-centeredness to God. Why? We're going to be exploring threads of this in the weeks to come. But why is there a God-centeredness to God? Because he's weighty, heavy, significant, important, full of glory. I'm going to reference this work a little bit later, but Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s wrote a a book on this topic that is unmatched. The book is entitled A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Made the World. It's a short read, but it's a dense read. And Edwards puts it this way. He says this, But if God be indeed so great and so excellent that all other beings are as nothing to him, and all other excellency be as nothing and less than nothing and vanity in comparison of his, and God be omniscient and infallible and perfectly knows that he is infinitely the most valuable being, then it is fit that his heart should be agreeable to this, which is indeed the true nature and proportion of things and agreeable to this infallible and all comprehending understanding which he has of them and that perfectly clear light in which he views them. And so tis fit and suitable that he should value himself infinitely more than his creatures. Now, this does not work against God's love for us, nor our happiness, as we'll see in camera angle three coming up here. But what Edwards is contending, and what I think is supported by Scripture time and again, is that God values that which is most valuable. That is what it means to be righteous. God values that which is most valuable, and that which is most valuable is He. So you were made to make much of the glory of God. You exist to increase awareness in yourself and others of the importance, the significance, and the glory of God. God made you for that purpose. God made you for his glory. And the very first evidence of this is that we're made to image the original. We're made in God's image and no other. Let's look at the second camera angle. You're going to need your Bibles because we're walking through these verses one by one. John 11, 1 through 6. John 11, 1 through 6. Jesus had close friends while he walked the earth. Mary, Martha, Lazarus were among his close friends. And uh, in this chapter... They send word to Jesus that Lazarus was very sick. That's the setting for Jesus' amazing words about death and love and the glory of God. And as we walk through these verses, just listen for those 
words. Listen for those three words. Pay attention to how they're used. Pay attention to the relationship they have with one another. Death, love, and glory. Those three words. Now, I suspect that for some of you, this this passage may turn your world upside down. Let's look at it. Verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, what's remarkable about verse 2 is that this this anointing um, of Jesus' feet hasn't happened yet. It actually happens in the next chapter, chapter 12. So, John is reaching for the clearest evidence of the extraordinary relationship that exists between Mary and Jesus, even though that evidence is yet to come. And the point is this. Mary is far from being a stranger to Jesus. There is an unusual love between her and Jesus. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So now John makes it explicit. And he means for us to see and feel the love that Jesus has for this family. This request for help is not coming from Uh, some casual acquaintance. It's coming from the closest circle of Jesus's friends. Look at verse four. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So the first thing Jesus does when he hears the news of Lazarus's illness is put it in relationship to the glory of God and his own glory. Let me say that again. The very first thing Jesus does when he hears that his good friend is sick is put the illness in relationship to the glory of God and the glory of, of himself. See, there's a God-centeredness to your life, to your hardships, even to your sicknesses and your death. Lazarus's illness is about God's glory. It's about the glory of the son of God. It's not mainly about death, though he will die. And Jesus knows that it is mainly about God, about the son and about how glorious God and the son are. Now in verse five, John underlines for a third time, the love that Jesus has for this family. Look at it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John really wants us to see this and feel this. Three times, he draws attention to Jesus' love for this family. Three times. Verse 2, verse 3, and verse 5. Three times. He wants us to see this, feel this, to know without a doubt of Jesus's love for this family. Why? Why, why, why? Why so much emphasis on this? John is stressing Jesus's love for this family because he knows that what Jesus is about to do will not feel like love to most people. 
Let me pause here for a moment. For, a moment. for most people, Love is whatever puts human value and human well-being at the center. It's an enlightenment idea. For most people, love is whatever puts human value and human well-being at the center. The motto of today's world and the motto that many of us live by is this. If you don't make much of me, you are not loving me. So Jesus' behavior in this story is unintelligible to most people. This is why I said it may turn your world upside down. Now, John knows that what he's about to say in verse 6 goes against all ordinary human experience where God is not supreme. And the key word that unlocks the shock of it is the word so at the beginning of verse 6. It's there in the original and it means therefore. So verses five and six read like this. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So therefore, because of this, because of this love for them, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus knew what this delay would mean it would mean the certainty of Lazarus' death. And now, perhaps, we're prepared to see and feel the main point. It was love that moved Jesus to let Lazarus die. It was the love of Jesus for this family, for his disciples, for us reading this text that caused him to choose to let Lazarus die. Look again at the connections Between verse 5 and verse 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He did not hurry to his side. And in writing, John intends and Jesus intends for everyone seeing this to ask, how is that love? John has gone out of his way to set this up. Jesus loves them. He loves them. Therefore, he does not heal him, but lets him die. Why is that love? Well, Jesus has already given the answer loud and clear, and he'll give it again in verse 14. He said in verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. This illness will not turn out will turn out for the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. The the illness will put the glory of God on display. It will put the significance and importance of Jesus on display. Therefore, verse 6, love lets him die. Love lets him die because his death will help them see in more ways than they know the glory of God. So what is love? (laughs) Love. What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. And according to Jesus, what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? 
The answer of this particular text is clear. It's a revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing, admiring, marveling at, savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Love is doing whatever you have to. To help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy. To help people see and be satisfied with the glory of God. There's something hollow and deeply dissatisfying about beholding a great self. The most exhilarating moments of my life have come when I have beheld a great splendor outside myself. Seeing the snow-capped mountains of Santa Fe, New Mexico for the first time. Gazing upon the vastness of the Grand Canyon. Walking the campus of Cambridge University where so many greats from the Christian life once taught. Watching my kids be born. Joy comes from beholding a great splendor outside yourself. Not beholding a great self. God will do whatever it takes to enthrall us with the splendor of his glory. To do so is not vanity. It's love. And as we'll see next, that's the way we find happiness. So let's look at our third camera angle. Flip over to John 17. Stay in the book of John. Flip over to John 17. John 17. We're going to be looking at, we'll be in the first five verses, and then we're going to jump down um, to verses 20 and 26 and glance at some things there as well. In John 17, 1, Jesus says to the Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. So the, the, father, the father is glorifying Jesus. Jesus is glorifying the Father. That's happening right now. But verses 4 and 5 tell us that's been happening from all eternity. The Son has been glorifying the Father. The Father has been glorifying the Son before the world began. And therefore, the Father and Son have been glorifying each other mutually and eternally. Now, what does it mean to glorify? We've highlighted this already. It's to bring awareness to the importance, the significance of someone, to put it in different words, to praise, appreciate, adore, serve, please, all out of love. That's glorifying. Jesus says it twice, but, but look down at verse 24. I want them to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me. See, if you love someone, truly love someone, one of the ways you express that is you glorify them. You lift them up. You praise them. You adore them. You serve them. You please them. Now, we're told not only have the Father and Son been doing this from all eternity, from all eternity, but, but uh, John 16, 14, we won't look at it right now, but John 16, 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit has been participating in this as well. Therefore, what we have is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity have been pouring glory, love, and joy into one another's hearts. They've been communicating and pouring love, joy, and glory into one another's hearts in amounts and degrees that we cannot imagine for trillions and trillions and trillions of years and many, many years before that. That's what God has been doing since before there was time. 
That's the nature of God. This is the only God there is. So falling out of that are two things. And they both relate to the glory of God. There are two things that fall out of that. First, God is infinitely happy. Not to be would imply there's an imperfection. There's a flaw. Now, there's no other religion that has warrant to talk about God is infinitely happy. Eastern religions view God more as a force and therefore there's no category for talking about God being happy because that God isn't personal. There are some religions that hold to God as personal, not as a force, but he's a unipersonal God. Uni, one, unipersonal God, not three persons, just one. And a unipersonal God could not have loved Before there were other beings. Love is something one person feels and does for another. Before anything else was created, a unipersonal God could not have loved and therefore could not have had this infinite happiness. What we have in the God of the Bible is a tri-personal God. Three persons, tri-personal God. Who do not seek their own glory, but they're giving glory to the other two. There's no greater joy than to have someone love you, not because you demanded it, but because you freely were given it. You freely received it. When you have to demand love from someone, it's not at all satisfying. Love freely given, freely received is deeply satisfying. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not demanding love. They're not seeking their own glory. They're giving glory. They're giving love freely, receiving freely. And that is the recipe for happiness. And God has had that from all eternity. It's one of the things that falls out of this idea of a tri-personal God. Now, there's another, there's another implication that falls out of this, and that is there is implied in here the reason God created the world. Why did God create the world? Why, why would a unipersonal God create a world of worshipers? So he could get worship. So he could get servants. So he could get adoration. But a tri-personal God does not need that. The tripersonal God already had that. So why would a tripersonal God who already has infinite happiness, infinite joy, infinite love, why would a tripersonal God who already has this infinite personal communication of joy and love, why would he create a world? It's obviously not to get that mutual communication of love and joy, but to share it. He didn't create a world to get happy. He was already infinitely happy. He didn't create a world to get love. He was already infinitely loved. He created the world to share it. Verse 22, Jesus says, I want the world to have what we have. I want them to have the unity and the love that we have. Verse 24, I want them to see the glory and the love that we have. The whole purpose of creation and redemption is not for God to get love and adoration and glory, but to share it. If this is true, then this says something remarkable about why you exist and how you can be happy. Here's the bottom line to it. 
Your, your absolute highest purpose and meaning and the only way you'll ever be happy is if you're glorifying God above all other things. Your absolute highest purpose and meaning and the only way you'll ever be happy is if you're glorifying God above all other things. Now let me be blunt about this. Living by the motto, if you don't make much of me, you're not loving me, is the reason you're unhappy. You're unhappy because you're living by that motto. You're looking for the world and the people around you to make much of you because in your world, that's the only way you're going to feel loved. But if that's the case, your paradigm for life is off the mark. Your absolute highest purpose and meaning. And the only way you'll be happy is if you are glorifying God above all other things. George Marsden wrote a biography of, of Edwards. Um, this is the book I mentioned earlier, the end for which God created the world or the purpose for which God created the world. Edwards believed the Bible taught what we just said and what we see in John 17, that, that God had perfect love, happiness, and joy. And therefore, since he already had that in himself, he didn't create a world of persons in order to get love, adoration, and joy so much as to share what he had. He wanted to share with us this infinite happiness and joy that he has. And therefore, the route, the means, the path to happiness is given to us by the tripersonal God because we're cut from the same cloth. We're made in his image. And how is God happy? Well, each of the divine persons do not demand glory. They don't live for their own glory, but they live for the glory of the others. So Marsden, in his biography of Edwards, tries to summarize this particular thesis of Edwards. He writes this, It is consistent with the nature of God who is essentially loving to create a world of beings and communicate that love and delight he had in himself to them. Perfect goodness, beauty, and love radiate from God and draw his creatures to ever increasingly share in God's joy and delight. How? We do so as we come to rejoice in divine glory as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already do. We do so as we come not to seek glory for ourselves, but as we give glory to God, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already are. This process of growth and happiness will go on forever, eternally increasing unimaginably. Hear what he said? If we want to share in God's joy and delight, we need to do as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already rejoice in divine glory. They already live not for their own glory, but for the glory of the others. Therefore, you will be happy only if you're doing the same thing. You're created to do exactly as they do and to have the happiness they have. And the only way that will happen is if God is the very center of your life. The only way it will happen is if you give God glory, your absolute highest purpose and meaning. And the only way you'll ever be happy is if you're glorifying God above all other things. Now, what does that mean? Let's get practical. Let's get practical. Let me try to explain how giving glory to God, living for the glory of God is the pathway to happiness. In the first commandment, God essentially says, worship me and nothing else. In other words, not worshiping is not an option. We have been hardwired to be worshipers. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. Or to put it in different language, everybody gives glory to someone or something. 
If you don't give glory to God, you're going to give glory to someone else or something else. Because we're made this way. We're made in God's image. God is tri-personal. Each person gives glory naturally. We've been formed like that. Just like the tri-personal God is a glory giver, so we too are glory givers. We do this naturally. You will and you do glorify something, give glory to someone or something. For example, if you've recently felt like a failure or you've lost face and it's eating you up inside, or you've been criticized really strongly and it's just eating you up, do you know why? Because you're giving more weight. You're giving more glory and weight to what people think about you. Now, maybe you believe God loves you in some way, but what you're really glorifying, what you're really ascribing ultimate value to, what you're really worshiping is what people think of you. If you're more upset about gaining five pounds than you are about having some sinful habit in your life, then you're ascribing more glory to how you look, to your own beauty, than to what God thinks. When God's approval, God's will, when when God's service, when his glory is preeminent in, in your life, then and only then will you be happy. The only reason we're ever eaten up inside by anything is when we're giving more weight or glory to someone or something other than God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are infinitely happy because they glorify each other and don't seek glory for themselves. So as long as you're trying to get your own glory through success or looks or approval or status, you'll never be happy. Why? Because you're made for something else. You were made to give ultimate weight and glory and worship to the tri-personal God. Your absolute highest purpose and meaning and the only way you'll ever be happy is if you're glorifying God above all other things. And if you're not worshiping God, if he's not the number one thing in your life, not just in your head, but in your heart too, you're cut off from your real origins. You're cut off from your real design. You're going against the grain of your own being. He created the world to share that infinite happiness. And the only way you'll have that infinite happiness is if you worship him and him alone. Now I'll conclude with this. I want to circle back to this. We have been tremendously influenced by Enlightenment thought. Among other things, the Enlightenment taught that you should seek your own happiness and God's great aim is to promote your well-being. And so we're taught to think, if you don't make much of me, you're not loving me. And we're blasted with this idea in our culture today. The way you love me is by making much of me. And we're told here in the scriptures that that is a complete and utter lie. The fact of the matter is, the more you live by the motto, the way you love me is by making much of me, the more selfish you get. The less like God you become, the more like Satan you become, the closer to hell you get. The happiness that resides within the tri-personal God shows us the self was meant to be abdicated. The happiness within the tri-personal God shows us the route to happiness is by giving ultimate value, ultimate weight, ultimate glory 
the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desperately need to be radically transformed in order to experience the happiness you enjoy with the Son and the Spirit. We naturally want the people around us to make much of us. We, we naturally want the world to make much of us. We naturally believe we're loved when we are made much of. And your word on that is scandalous. The pathway to happiness is counterintuitive. But in order for us to see and passionately embrace that our ultimate meaning and purpose is to make you most important, most significant, most glorious, is for you to mightily change what our hearts want most. That's a miracle only you can perform. And so we pray for that. Convict us for the myriad of ways we attempt to make ourselves glorious. Give us a clear picture of your beauty, majesty, splendor, honor, and glory that our hearts may long for you above all things. We ask in your name. Amen.